iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, what did Manchester United learn from their thrashing at the Etihad? Another hat-trick for Erling Haaland. We'll ask, are City impossible to beat? Arsenal beat their North London rival Spurs 3-1. But does Conte ball need to come to an end very, very soon? We'll react to the sacking of the Wolves manager Bruno Large after just 16 months in charge. And we'll ask you about Liverpool. What needs to change if they're ever to return to being Premier League title contenders, as well as judging our most underrated players in the league today. This is the game. Hello again, I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm alongside Tom Roddy, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark today. Going to be a great conversation, I'm sure. And you know what? My mood is good today. I'm a happy man. Honestly, I've had a great weekend. I went to the NFL in London. Do you know what that means? It means I didn't watch the Manchester Derby live. So ignorance is bliss. You know, 6-3. Respectable scoreline in many ways for Manchester United this weekend as Manchester City romped home in that Manchester Derby. Did you look at your phone though just to kind of end it up depressed? Do you know what was going on? So a lot of people in, and John Jackson, our producer, was there with me as well. Ooh, a lot of friends. people, a lot of yeah, a lot of people <laughs> who were there had gone back into the yes hospitality box. I'll say it. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prawn sandwich brigade <laughs> to watch the game, and I stayed, and I, I kept an eye on the New Orleans Saints and the Minnesota Vikings because I knew what was going to happen. Manchester United were going to be brought crashing back down to earth. It was inevitable. Even in the four-win run, there were a couple of you know pretty scraped 1-0 victories so look I think we know Manchester United are a golf away and this just underlined it Erling Haaland third hat-trick of the Premier League season made all the less impressive by the fact Phil Foden got one as well but it was a kind of afternoon that did remind us didn't it that that so many people think the Premier League is a foregone conclusion and this is why you know City are unbelievable Manchester United a long way from being a top side we'll start with City simple question Gregor I'm going to start with you are they going to be impossible to beat this season? Um, They look ominous the first half was some of the best football you can remember seeing really in the Premier League so many threats so much kind of intensity about the play as well it's not just like how good they are with the ball it's it's their speed the kind of how direct they are and now what Haaland has done is changed the kind of the nature of how direct they are as well it's like they, uh, when they break if they can get get the ball to Kevin De Bruyne it's like it's almost a foregone conclusion James Gearbrand wrote about this today and it was like everyone knew when he got the ball the ball in, in the pocket of his face mm. even Manchester United defence knew what to do but there was really no stopping it because he's so He's just his reach and his kind of athleticism is just remarkable. And De Bruyne is one of the best passers of the ball that the Premier League's seen. So those two were just incredible. And Manchester United were miles off. It was like uh, they were so sloppy in the opening exchanges that, like, you know, they were going to be in for a tough afternoon as it was, but they, they kind of invited City onto them as well, which was just, it was just remarkable to watch. There were a few performances in my opinion, like Manchester United's this weekend, you could underline the number of sort of half-hearted presses from certain players in the Premier League this weekend, the the lacklustre tracking back. You know, it wasn't every team. Some teams were on it, some teams weren't. I don't know if the international break affected the Manchester United players much, but they weren't at it for a derby match away from home. It wasn't. It just wasn't good enough. And I think if you're not good enough against Manchester City, they're going to batter you. They're that good, right? So was it just those two things coming to pass, Tom? I think it was a little bit of that, yes. Um, I mean, to me, the other ominous thing is 
the subject of Paul Hurst's piece of analysis this morning, which talks about the city's defence as well. And obviously, we can we can talk forever about Foden and Haaland and De Bruyne and Grealish as well. I thought Grealish mm-hmm. was very good and looks to be improving all the time, playing off Haaland and coming into little pockets of space. But I mean, the fact that you've got a Kanji, who is probably you know, if Haaland's the best signing of the summer, he's got to be up there in top five in terms of very clever purchases. Um, he looked completely at ease, you know, kind of definitely ticked the Rolls-Royce type box in terms of defence. And the fact that I was talking about it with Paul Hurst before the game, we were speculating, does this give United a chance? Akanje, Ake, they've had to change the defence again. You know, we, we think about it in terms of conversations that we've had around the Premier League teams and we talk about, oh, they can't get a settled defence. City seem to be fine without a settled defence. Someone's like they don't want a settled defence. It changes all the time. Walker came off, Gomez comes on, Cancelo switches it to the right. Like It's so impressive the way it doesn't seem to affect them at all. So, I mean, that to me was the most ominous thing because if you're thinking about, that's the big question and we're sat in the office this morning as editors discussing it, oh, do we try and do a piece on how do you stop Haaland? Don't worry, Gregor, I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I, got, I got you out of it. Um, but you try and think, okay, well, maybe teams can get at them then, but you know they, they just can't. And I mean, I know United scored three goals, but as you say, Hugh, they were coming off the back of four good performances, but even players like Anthony, Sancho's had a brighter start to the season, Rashford's one player of the month, like they just couldn't get any change out of Akanje and Ake. And I just thought that was as as ominous and as brilliant as the forwards are, that was a really telling thing in terms of City and what they could do this season. I mean you've got to say on top of that though, some of it was like simple miscontrols or like just really sloppy wayward passes yeah they were they were very sloppy Malassi as well a little inside pass straight to De Bruyne and Dallow was like looked like a nervous wreck against Greenwich at the start so there was a lot of people there was a lot of kind of reversion to the mean you've got to say as well it wasn't just kind of we've given Ericsson a lot of praise I think that was his worst game he was he was dreadful in the first half I think Um, he'd been brilliant but it it looked so We'd made a lot of it beforehand. James Gearbrandt had written his football newsletter last week about Ericsson playing in this deeper role. It almost felt like that was United's one real bright spark this season. And you're kind of going, okay, well, you think City aren't going to spot that? Of course they did. There were so many intercepted passes of Ericsson's, weren't there, where he was kind of looking up in that deep quarterback role that we call it, trying to spray passes, and they were just all being intercepted because it's like, yep, we know what you're going to do, mate. I understand the logic in starting Ericsson and McTominay after the games, after the performance they've had so far this season, and Ten Hag spoke about that, the positivity, and you can't change a winning formula in a way. But at the same time, you you look at, at the way, the teams that play well against City, and it tends to be teams like Palace or Tottenham and the approach is always that kind of a a strong solid defence and midfield with a midfield that will sit in front of the defence and then players like Son, uh, Richarlison, Kane and then Eze, uh, Odson, Edward and Zaha who just hit you on the counter-attack they tend to be the most effective against City because they maybe lulling them in a little bit and it it certainly isn't easy but you you feel like United had that a little bit they have those players to be able to potentially do that because of having Sancho Rashford Anthony I, I feel like they had the players to do that and it's easy sitting here on Monday morning in hindsight but I'm still quite surprised Casemiro didn't start that game it, it, it seems that seems illogical to me. We don't really know why he's not been starting much since his arrival from Real Madrid, to be perfectly honest. Maybe we've got an answer to why Cristiano Ronaldo's not playing at all. I mean, that is a, a big one. We saw some rants from some big names this weekend about him not being at the club to sit on the bench. You know, I th- what was the word that Ten Hag used? You know, saving his... Re- disrespecting his career, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, disrespecting his career. You know, left him on the bench for those reasons. I mean... It's a derby match. It's Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, why wouldn't he play, Gregor? Oh, clearly he meant when you know, you're know 4 nil down at half-time or whatever. So mm. I don't... Is I it disrespecting his career to leave him on the bench in the first place? No. Not with what Tom said about, you know, teams that do well exactly, getting yeah. at City and yeah. how United have played. Rashford, player of the month, as we said. I, 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 I actually didn't mind it. And I mean, as much as Roy Keane can say he thinks it's a disgrace to leave him on the bench and things, I, I kind of saw what Ten Hag meant. Like... 
in that scenario, when I was watching the game, I think you're not going to gain anything from bringing Ronaldo on here. No. And his argument with Martial was that, okay, we bring Martial on because he needs some minutes and that he'd been part of pre-season and then he got injured and he comes on and gets some minutes and some goals. So I, 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 I don't buy the whole furore around Ronaldo in this specific instant. And I'm, on like a basic human level, I kind of have some sympathy about the fact he wanted to leave and they kind of said no, just because it's, you know, he's getting towards the, the end of his career and he'll want to play. Uh, who knows who was going to take him? Like, you know, there was like rumblings about clubs like Napoli or something. I don't know if he's going to, if he's really going to be up for that. So we don't know all the kind of machinations behind the scenes about that. But if he really wanted to leave and there was an option there and they said no and he, and they're not going to use him, you know, that seems, that seems like it's not really benefiting anyone. What do we learn about Eric Ten Hag's Manchester United during this game? Did we learn much, Tom? I think... I think if I was them, I would almost just try and banish any thoughts of this whatsoever immediately because in the grand scheme of things, the performances they've had against Arsenal and against Liverpool have been extremely positive. And I think we have seen progress in these early weeks and we've got to remember how early this is in Ten Hag's tenure. So like you said, Hugh, at the beginning, this wasn't this result wasn't a surprise, and it shouldn't have been a surprise. And when Haaland, when you've got the the best attacking midfielder or the best midfielder in the world playing with the best striker in the world, it really shouldn't be a surprise when these these things happen. I think that the takeaway they may have is being a little bit more pragmatic when approaching these games, because in hindsight, it looked. Naive, and I think they were pragmatic. I just think they were really, really poor. Yeah, like yeah. they were so sloppy. I can't kind of emphasise that enough. And there's, I think, what we learned was that you know, although we've seen promise from Malasia, Dallo's been improved this season. They're not really, elite. you know, well, even if they're not elite, I don't. I think you can say that about about Dallo. Malasia is new to the Premier League. This is a big game. He looked nervous. He looked like he didn't look the same player we've seen. That was uh, what Ten Hag said, wasn't it? The confidence. Yeah. He said. He said that was part of his mistake as well. He didn't get any confidence out of the players. Yeah. And while Anthony scored a screamer, um, you know, he's new to the Premier League. Sancho still kind of doesn't seem to quite have the sort of mentality to think I'm going to go and stamp my authority in this game. Not in the same way as Foden did or Grealish did or most of Manchester Manchester City's attacking players. So there's like still a kind of reminder that they're just, they're not at the same level in that kind of winning competitive spirit level actually and they've got some players who are probably not up to the level as players either I'm still not convinced they use Sancho in the right way though as well at United I don't think they use him in the same way Dortmund did and when you look at what happened with Bakaya Saka and Phil Foden on international duty with England and the way that the two clubs have used them in this this weekend they're totally different players because mm. they're being played and deployed in the right way. Okay, all right. Manchester United um, battered by Manchester City. Not a new headline, unfortunately, for Manchester United fans. They get to bounce back very quickly uh, in Cyprus against Ammonia in the Europa League on Thursday. So that's the way you forget about a defeat, a big defeat to Manchester City by bouncing back in the Europa League and against Everton next weekend in the Premier League as well. Elsewhere this weekend, Arsenal beat their North London rival Spurs 3-1. They make it seven wins on the bounce at home in the Premier League. Mikel Arteta's side staying top of the table. Comfortable for lots of the game. They were also helped by a red card for the Spurs defender Emerson Royale. But I think we, we have to discuss, at least start by discussing, some of the dismay of the Spurs fans. Um, because despite their positive start in terms of results, sitting back, playing on the counter in this way, Conte ball that many people have, have dubbed it. It may work at times. Does it work for Spurs? Because they, even though they've got results, as I've said before, I think we should have seen an improving Tottenham, a one that took a big step forward. They, they haven't really from last season. To some, they've taken a step backwards. Um, players sitting in deep, but they were quite passive as well. And I think that played a part uh, in the result in the North London derby. Tom Roddy, I'll start with you. Is Conte ball a thing of the past? If not, does he need to change it for this Spurs squad? 
I don't think it's a thing of the past. I think it's that formation and approach which tends to be very effective, but also can be nullified. Um, the, the thing that I think they miss, Spurs, is the guy in the middle of the park who creates. When Conte won the Premier League at Chelsea, he had Cesc Fabregas um, playing that role, the, the creator-in-chief. At Inter Milan, he had Christian Eriksen playing that role. It's the it's the guy who... It, it's the De Bruyne, essentially, the guy who threads it all together um, and actually is prob- quite possibly the most important player in the Conte team, even though there's that focus on the wingbacks. I remember Conte's first game for Spurs was at Everton, and he was desperately trying to get Hoiberg to to do that. And Hoiberg is not that player. And what we've seen is Dyer taking on that role a little bit as the the quarterback, but he he can't roam as much as you would like to. It needs to be a centre mid. It needs to be someone who who has the license to get forward a bit more. And also, you know for however good Dyer is as a centre-back and as a ball-playing centre-back, he doesn't compare to Ericsson and Fabregas in terms of creativity. So I think they really suffer without a player like that. Should they have put a third midfielder in there? I think a lot of the Spurs fans were saying, look, you you know what Arsenal are going to have in midfield. They've played well this season with three in there. We shouldn't be playing 3-4-3 in this game. I know they point to the second half uh, against Leicester City when they scored all those goals and they had an extra a player in midfield. Should they have done it? I'll ask you, Gregor, was it the right team selection this weekend from Conte? I don't know. When this, when when Conte has this this system working at its best, that three-man defence with two sitting on, on front of it is pretty hard to break down. And what you said at the start, they start too deep. They didn't step out to close down particularly parties party strike, which is a lovely strike, but there was no pressure on the ball. Personally, I don't think there's a I don't think we should be surprised by the way Tottenham are playing, first of all. I don't think there's a problem with the system. I think it's the way that they they went out and, and performed it. That was that was what mattered. And also there was they they had they had openings. It was you know number of times Son had a Son's final ball was was kind of sloppy uh, or over hit. They had opportunities, it, it, you know, it, it kind of worked to a certain extent and then they had the sending off, which which clearly um, kind of wrecked their chances of the game. And But first, I'll go back to it, you can't be surprised. If Tottenham fans are surprised of the way that Conte is setting the team out, then they haven't been watching closely enough. Kulosevsky's a huge miss, isn't he? Like in that team and the way he plays in that he, he provides that creativity that Tom was quite rightly talking about. But then Conte's obviously signed Richarlison I think he would arguably want to have Kulosevsky's creativity and those front three because, as Gregor said, they did cause Arsenal problems on the counter-attack. But the problem then came, back to Tom's point, was that you only had those three going forward. There were a couple of times in that first half where they would break and then you would be looking for that second wave, looking for that outball. And I think there was a couple, you know, Emerson Royale finally gets on the overlap. And I think even for the move that created the, um, the penalty... It was just the three of them forward. It was just those three. And there was no kind of cavalry arriving on the edge of the block box that Tom was talking about. Like for Chelsea under Conte, Fabregas would always arrive in that little position to keep the pressure on, to keep the other opposition pinned back. And there just wasn't that for Tottenham. You know, Hoiberg's not that player. Benton Kerr, probably not that player. Like they're missing that in midfield. So that's the difficulty. I'm, I agree with Gregor. I'm not that surprised about it, but... Kulisevsky's a big miss and how he gets him in whether he can get him in and the three forwards I don't think he can so I'd say that's a big problem for Tottenham in that he, he was missing from this game uh, but I'd, I agree with Gregor I don't think Conte's going to change all that much to be honest it's about in these big games how they get more out of the, that attack It's true I think that a lot of fans think that when that's the front three they're, as Tom's saying they look more detached whereas Kulisevsky seems to link them link the kind of midfield and and uh, forward line better, and he's he's a bit more of a kind of he can hold on to the ball as well to buy buy some time and let players support. Whereas Son and Richarlison are all about direct lines and not really they want they're the players who want to be running onto the balls, the through balls. They don't want to be doing you know Son was dropping deep and trying to slip balls in and it didn't work. So Kulusevski's a big player for them now. That game didn't play out 
any different to how we probably all expected it to, which was what made it quite fascinating because Arsenal, possession-based team, attractive football, Tottenham, counter-attacking. And I thought you made a really important point, Gregor, that exactly what I thought. There were so many openings that Tottenham, I think Conte probably walked away from that game and thought, we should have won that, definitely, because there were so many openings and they are the type of team that get ahead and then shut up shop, to use that horrible cliche. Um, so it was exactly what we expected in terms of the way it played out. And I think they'll regret it, really. They'll ruin it. Can they continue this way during the season? If they do, where will Tottenham be? What do you think, Tom? Can they continue playing this yeah. way? Yeah, and I think I don't think they should be downhearted about it. I think they're a, they're a top four team right now and they'll have to aspire to more than that. I wonder whether January does become that point where they try and bring in that kind of player, the creative player as well as missing Kulisevsky but also they don't have to rush into anything at all in January because they do have the players the, the bizarre thing in a way is Basuma I've been a little bit surprised at how he hasn't been tried in that role a little bit he's been a had a bit part role hasn't he so far and now that Royals kind of at a moment of madness I think that gives an opportunity to someone else which I think a lot of people will be rather relieved of relishing the opportunity for Jed Spence who we know Antonio Conte sort of alluded to wasn't a player that he wanted so we'll see exactly who he does select uh, in that role um, should mention a positive for Arsenal shouldn't we Tom? Yeah Super Mikel at it again <laughs> <laughs> I backed him on Thursday and he delivered calm composed confident commanding win which let's be honest you know it was what we discussed in the preview show talking about it talking about those big moments at the Emirates big games where they've kind of not bottled it but almost gone too full throttle and lost their compl- composure completely they didn't do that Hugh you predicted a red card it went to Tottenham not Arsenal I think you know you have to give them credit for that they look really really composed and when you think about attacks you know we're just criticising Tottenham again you have to give Arteta credit you have those two banks of five that essentially they have just pinning the opposition back completely smothering them and that's where you then get a goal like the first one where your right back Ben White plays it to your defensive midfielder to curl one in because the front five are already occupied but then in the second half he went even further than that and started saying to Ben White get forwards get get on the overlap so you're then creating essentially like a front six sometimes a front seven he's, he's going for it he's identifying it he's being bold in these big games and it's paying off I think he deserves huge credit and I mean Look, I'm sure there are some very positive Arsenal fans that would have liked us to chip in during our conversation with Man City and go, hey, we're still top, guys. Yeah, I don't think they'll be top at the end of the season. I don't think they will either. That's, probably, the, but, that's the question. But we do it? have to so, mention it, don't we? When when you think about this game, yes, they lost to Manchester United, but arguably shouldn't. This is a hugely, hugely significant result yeah. for Arsenal and Arteta, I think. Like, massive, massive performance. The, the nature of it, more than anything, not just the fact they won, it's the nature of it is the fact they completely dominated they looked like the better team they took their chances they kept their composure because you asked you know we asked in the preview show you know who's this more important for and most of us said Arsenal really because it's like if not if not to say that they're going to be title challengers to say that they can go deep into the season being in that kind of mix and all the evidence suggests that they can um, they're playing so much higher up the pitch and that's the result of having far more confidence in the, the guys at the back because Saliba's in and, and he's formed a good uh, partnership with Gabriel. Ben White's kind of exceeding most people's expectations are right back. Party being fit is so important for them. And Jack is kind of looking like a new, play, <laughs> a new player and playing higher up the pitch. And you can go so through so many positives. Martinelli, him staying fit as well. It's crucial. And Jesus, again, mm. you've got to say just like... The menace and the sort of tenacity, bite, yeah, yeah, tenacity, all those words that he provides uh, is just pretty They just don't score. I know it's a mistake from Hugo Lloris, but they just don't score that goal if it's in Ketia. You know, if, if, if it was, he's just, you know, he's gone past two defenders to just throw his body in there to try and make something happen. He's ended up with a tap in and it's just because of his sheer desire, to be perfectly honest. There's nothing against Eddie Nketiah as a footballer, by the way. I'm just saying there's something extra when it comes to good, good, 
good time to bring back Jesus versus Richarlison. Hey, look, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. You sure? I'm still, I'm still backing him, all right? He's oh, still, uh, he's still... we'll, be, we'll be at a good weekend as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah we'll assist. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Just... Peace from Paul, Paul Rowan in the game today as well, just praising him, saying... Hey, look, who was, in, who was editing the game, Greg, yesterday? That's all I'm going to say. Look, but just on the desire thing, Hugh, I think as well, we're talking about them playing high up the pitch. You then have that, you know, they smother in attack and then they swarm in defence, don't they? Like, the, the drive to win the ball back as well you know, you're finally seeing that in a very targeted and tactical way, not just the kind of headless chicken way. It all looks like it's working for Mikel Arteta at the minute. I yeah. think it's also a... It, Arsenal deserves so much credit, and we'll say this time and time again, because there was that moment, wasn't there, around Christmas um, when we thought Arteta might go, and now it, the temptation must have been there, and we've seen again Bruno Larg going from Wolves, and it's it, it whether it is the case, it feels like the time span that managers get and the opportunities they get is is shorter and shorter. The the patience is running out so much quicker, but the the effort that they've given to Arteta and the time they've allowed him to form something, and you you've seen it develop, haven't you? You've seen the project move and develop, and it will be attractive to people. It will be attractive to players when it comes to transfer windows. Thinking where is where is that club going? Because Tottenham, can we guarantee that Conte will be there next this time next year? Absolutely not. What are Chelsea going to be like? Who knows? This it's a really uncertain period. Even with Liverpool, what's happening there at the moment? It's it, it, they are a, a very impressive project. But what I'm saying is there is progression at Arsenal, and it's it's attractive to a, a lot of players. I was just going to say, like, I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but do you not think that the documentary as well is like? I think it's the first documentary that's actually had a positive impact yeah, yeah. on the perception of the manager and the club as a whole actually because mm. the rest of them have been like PR exercises they didn't shirk some big stories and you saw Arteta like some cringeworthy moments but he wears his heart on his sleeve you see his passion you see how much he wants the players mm. to follow him and actually you see a buy-in and you see even Edu seems like a good guy like a, mm. a positive force behind the scenes and you got to know Xhaka a little bit more. It's like, I actually feel that it's had a positive impact. It certainly must among the fan base. I'm not an Arsenal fan. And I look, look at the club slightly differently now. Why are you shaking your head at that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realise. As I don't want to say, I don't want to make too big a deal about it, but I think it's, it's had a positive effect, just changing yeah. the perception and the atmosphere in the club because it was toxic. Absolutely. They're playing great football at the moment, Arsenal. It's a North London derby win. I've got to say, I watched them and thought... That they're playing the kind of football that would get them to the last eight of the Champions League. Like they, they are playing such good football at the moment. Obviously, they're not in that top competition at the moment, but who knows what they could do in European football in terms of lifting the Europa League this season. And of course, that's to come on Thursday. Um, listen, much more to come. You mentioned Bruno Large there, Tom. We're going to be talking about him next on the Game Podcast. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
so we have another managerial sacking in the Premier League. Wolves parting company with Bruno Large after 16 months in charge. That came after their defeat by West Ham this weekend. It leaves them in the bottom three in the Premier League table. He, of course, succeeded Nuno Espirito Santo last summer. Came 10th in his first season in charge, but they have won one and lost nine of their past 15 Premier League matches. It's been a pretty bad run. That's what the club alluded to when they dismissed him. Charlotte Dunker from the Times joins us on the game. Charlotte, was this a fair decision? Was it coming for some time? Yeah, I think so. I think coming for some time is exactly the right way to describe it. If you look at the way Wolves finished last season and then the money that was spent over the summer, they spent over 100 million strengthening the squad and then the way they've started this season, there's not really been any improvement. They've scored three goals in their opening eight games. And like you say, if you go back of the stretch over to last season, they've had one win in the league in the last 15 games. And for a team that wants to be pushing and competing in Europe, that's really just not good enough. Where does it leave the club now then? So um, at the weekend, they um, play Chelsea and they've got Steve Davis, who's the under-18s coach, and James Collins, who coaches the under-21 side. They're taking training this week. As I understand it, they're now obviously searching for a new manager. I don't think they sacked him and had a ready-made replacement in mind because, as you know, there's not been an appointment in the last 24 hours since they made that decision to sack him. Um, There'll be a short list of candidates drawn up and then um, the owners will decide who the best fit is and then try and get them in as soon as possible. But whether that is before the Chelsea game or not, we don't know at the moment. Will we see another Portuguese manager then come in? (laughs) Well, I think that's what everyone's expecting. If if you look at the team that they've got there, it's very um, heavy Portugal-based, isn't it? And they've got a very strong link with George Mendes' agency. So a lot of people are suggesting that it will be one of his clients that would possibly come in. The name I've heard at the minute is the the sporting manager, Ruben Amarim, is someone that they're interested in. He's a Portuguese manager, but he's not one of Mendes' clients. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see which move that what what move they take, where they go from here. But they need. I think it's they've also got a good squad. They've got a strong squad. They've got some very good players. So at the minute, the way they're performing and the results they're getting, they are underachieving. So they need a manager to be able to push them back up the table. Okay, thank you, Charlotte Dunker from the Times for joining us with that update on Wolves. Where then does it leave the club for you, Tom Clark? I mean, a really interesting crossroads, I think, because I found it interesting listening to Charlotte there talk about the kind of. Portugal connection the managers that she's heard linked with the job to me it just feels like they need a complete refresh because it feels like it's gone stale I think that was the problem that Bruno Large had it all felt like the set much of the same you know I was discussing this with Tony Cascarino yesterday and he felt that in that defeat against West Ham an unfit an out of form Diego Costa for 20 minutes or however long he played was their best player you, you know, Charlotte was saying it there. They've got a good squad. They've got talented, pretty top-level European players. But it just feels like the kind of um, Nuno era, then into large, it just felt all the same. And tactically as well, like, it all looks pretty similar. Like, they dominate possession. They don't create chances. Yes, they've changed the defence from a back three to a back four. That That's interesting in that they got rid of some big players and some experience, particularly in Connor Cody. But I feel like they need a kind of shake-up. They need a manager who's maybe a bit more high-intensity in his demeanour as much as anything. You know, Bruno Large is such a suave, kind of cool kind of character. You didn't really ever see him giving it the kind of Arteta's or any any of that, any of that on the touchline. So I wonder whether they need a, bit, a little bit more of intensity and personality and that will then translate onto the pitch as well. But I think tactically as well, if you're going to sign Diego Costa, surely you need to maybe make your tactics... Let's get the ball in the box and get the ball, well, maybe not over the top because he's not quite as young and as fit as he was when he was at Chelsea. I, I think they need to make a bold move, basically. I don't think you necessarily need it on the sideline. Think of managers like Carlo Angelotti, who just so... <laughs> he's not a, a, a chest uh, thumper, is he? Um, but but actually, the Tom mentioned Conor Cody and... I think the loss of him is is huge because a lot of when you look back to the Euros and England in the Euros, a lot of players speak about Connor Cody's influence. 
not on the pitch at all, but off the pitch. And having that presence and a guy who's been around the club and been part of the the its progression and and building and developing and bringing in reassurance really at a moment like this, I think they they lost that. And we've seen it at other clubs where key players who who bring a bit of levity really to the situation um, go and that team unity is lost but I think this probably comes in like it does quite often it comes into last season and really they should have got the Europa League spot the the, the form that they lost falling off last season they were on course to get that and the progression that they were showing has just fell off really and um, again Larg doesn't get the time but you you can sort of see why, and I thought his his post match press conference was telling that he knew this was coming because he he put his explanation out there. We haven't lost a game where a striker's been playing. I feel some sympathy in that with him in that, that regard. I mean, he has, he has been quite spiky. He can be quite spiky. He looks for excuses too often, in my opinion. But he that is one valid one. <laughs> you know, Jimenez has been out for a long period. They've not really had a like kind of out and out striker. Costa, yeah, came on and looked. That, that was a kind of desperate signing, really. Mm. Like, either come on and look dangerous, but they've kind of been. That's been a gaping hole in their team. They scored forty-one goals in his forty-six games. That says a lot. He did. He's been odd. He did an odd. He did an okay job. He started really kind yeah. of. Lots of draws. I could seem to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, February, March, you were thinking they were they were flirting with the top four. Often losing games they dominated as well. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of kind of narrow wins. Clearly, when you only scored forty-one goals in mm. forty-six games, so you know, part of me thinks if they'd had a, a kind of better striker or Jimenez was fit, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I was kind of. I also have to say I was slightly surprised he got the job in the first place. It was an odd appointment. It was like, and he seems to have done seems to have done all right over the piece, but. You know, he was a he was a number two for a long time. At, I think he was at Sheffield Wednesday, I think, and was he at Swansea too? Because he was under Carvalho, I believe. Um, so, like, not really much experience as a number one. Um, and I think you kind know, of the noises coming out too were that he's a good coach, but perhaps my management became an issue. And I think probably it's not just the results; it's that he seems to have kind of maybe lost the support of the dressing room a little bit as well. I think the guys make points there that you can kind of combine into one factor. They need a new identity, I think. Yeah. You know, under Nuno, they were hard to beat, as you said. You know, they had players like Cody and Jimenez who were the players that you could think of, but they're almost heading into a bit of a, like, to me, like elite Watford level where mm. you have that thing where you can't name that many Wolves players. Like, I reckon if you ask the average Premier League football fan, go on, name me five Wolves players. I reckon they'd struggle because they make these signings like Guedes and all these kind of players from Europe who come in and out Fabio Silva was another one like I, I reckon you people would go Neves uh, that Moutinho lad um, the keeper's quite good <laughs> but you know you know what I mean like because they're not grabbing Kilman played futsal didn't he yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but they need that new identity now you know they've lost leaders on and off the pitch like Cody big big name players they need a manager who's going to put a stamp on them in terms of identity tactically and they need a manager who's going to bring some of these players through like they've made these signings like Geddes was hotly tipped around Europe for a long time they need a manager who's going to bring some of these players through as well I think that's a good point because you know a lot of this was there's always been absolute support for uh, Wolves owners and despite the kind of links with George Mendes agency um, because it was all very new and Nuno did have that kind of although he didn't have, you can't say he's a person who had like great sweeping personality he had a clear identity and he gave that to the team um, and as I say it was all new and there was a, they were on the rise since then it is kind of they've lost that the early excitement of it they've lost as Tom says some players who were kind of very easily identifiable with that rise mm. and what next is quite important what happens next is important because they are at risk of becoming a team that kind of yeah, I don't know. They have a, that that link with Mendes is is remarkable, and yeah. they're signing half a stable, and and it's like Portugal in the black country. It's it's that's it. Yeah, that's it at the moment. That's what wolves are. Ruben Amarim uh, does have, I think, a lot of people who think he could be a very very good coach. So I, you know, just to hear that, if I'm a Wolves fan, I'll be pretty excited because it's an attacking brand of football. I think that's where their strength currently lies. You know, they don't concede many, they don't score many, but I think if you look at the squad, 
I think there are some explosive players they just need to get more out of, including the likes of Gadesh, but also, you know, Pedro Neto, who's yeah. so many been linked with big moves away. Adama Traore always on the bench, but physically we know what he can bring in terms of his explosiveness. It's just whether you can harness that in the right way. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next for Wolves. Sad for Bruno Large, of course, commiserations with him, but um, the club moves on and they need to move on very, very quickly. And so the club moves on and we move on next to a, a big game at Anfield this weekend. We'll end with this one. We've got some more to come, but I mean, in terms of the results, the question really has to be how you fix Liverpool right now because they were held to a three-all draw by Brighton at Anfield thanks to a Leandro Trossard hat-trick for the Seagulls. That's the first from one of their players in Premier League history. Liverpool have conceded first in nine of their last 11 Premier League matches and if they lose to Arsenal next weekend, they will be 14 points off the leaders. And really, you start thinking about whether this is the end of the incredible Klopp era. Because it was always going to be hard for Liverpool to keep up with the likes of Manchester City, even the likes of Manchester United and Chelsea, when it comes to their spending. Klopp has, I say, worked miracles. He's had a bit of money to spend, but from where he took Liverpool over and where he's brought them, absolutely incredible. Are they just going to be, and this is a bad period in terms of form, but are we looking at Liverpool being more of a top four side over the next few seasons than we are a, a title winning side or at least a title contender? Is that too harsh of me? Have I gone a bit too early, gentlemen? I Let me know what you I think. I think you're off the back of a Manchester derby thrashing there <laughs> and you're trying to find some salvation. I know, I'll dig Liverpool out. That'll make me feel better. Perhaps a little harsh, yeah. But I do think there's an element where, as you say, Hugh, that Klopp era, it's not, you know not on him, but on the team on the pitch. It feels like, it's a little bit stale and in need of a bit of a kind of more of a hard refresh rather than these kind of players that you're being brought in. Your Tiago's incredibly talented, looks in more, more and more at home when he plays, when he's fit. But it feels like you need a bigger change at the minute because ultimately they, they look best when they go back to Firmino and Salah out wide with either Diaz or Jota. Ultimately, you know, they improved when Diaz came on. Um, at the weekend but I mean Salah's a fascinating one he's kind of slightly emblematic of that point I was looking since he joined he's played the most Premier League games of any outfield player 187 games since he joined Liverpool in 2017 you know more than the likes of your Tarkovskis your James Ward-Prowse's your kind of players that you think they're, they're the kind of players that play every minute Salah's out in front and I think that he himself just got this new contract it's like well what does that mean for Liverpool going forward are they going to create a different system, different way of playing with Salah? Like, is he going to have a different role? It, it feels like they need a bit of a, a bigger refresh and they're going through this period at the minute where they've signed Nunes. The sending off against Palace seems to have completely derailed him in terms of confidence. It feels tricky. I don't know whether saying they're going to be top four for the next few seasons is a bit punchy. But for this season, whether this season could be a refresh season and then they could come back again next season. How good is Sadio Mane, hey? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, quite. He gets better and better each week after he's gone. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, that was said in jest, but, he, but quite possibly because one thing <clears throat> that you notice watching Liverpool at the moment and Gregor, you just said about Nuno Espirito Santo, you knew he had a model of how he played and his team reflected that. Klopp's is the same, isn't it? You know how Liverpool are going to play the heavy metal rock and roll football. And part of that is the Gagan pressing. And I do think Mane was a huge part of that, leading it. And that starts from the front. And I don't think they've, they haven't got that this year uh, so far, really. They've, they've, They've lost the pressing to an extent, the intensity. And what I thought was quite curious is the fact that Klopp often throughout his whole time as manager at Liverpool would make big name signings and he would bring them in and we'd all sit here on podcasts like this and go, God, this is going to be great and he's going to be doing this and he's going to be doing that. And then we end up watching him sit on, sat on the bench and getting a few minutes here and there coming in. Nunes hasn't been that. He got thrown in. And as Tom said, that moment at Palace has totally shaken that guy. Um, and, and you get anomalies like Luis Diaz, who just hit the ground running. But Nunes hasn't. And it just feels like, uh, at the moment, a team of individuals than a, a group 
what's what's the stat they've conceded first in every in all their games in nine games in a row? Nine in eleven. Right. And how many goals have they conceded? They've already they've already conceded like nearly as many as all of last season at home. It's like that's their starting point. There's two there's two things. It's interesting to see Van Dyke actually speaking um in the piece in the game today. He kept saying he said it twice that we we need to defend from the front. And mm. we also probably all saw Klopp's rant uh uh, kind of defending uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold mm. about the fact that we press from the front we defend from the front of course that'll leave space but you can't say for any of those three goals it had anything to do with them pressing badly from the front Trent Alexander rubbish header spin by Trossard goal uh, so, well, the, the second one was awful like, there's six. three players there Henderson yeah, no one made the Matic challenge. doesn't come out quick enough far like, too easy to score in their own right, deep in their box yeah. mm. and the third one Van Dyke miscued a, clear, a fairly standard clearance you know it's basic analysis but the players aren't playing at the level they have before and part of that is because there's something not quite as Tom's saying it's not working quite as well in terms of pressing from the front, because that creates anxiety at the back. So, I mean, you know, the things could be connected. They usually are these things. Mm. But they can't concede as many goals as they are and expect to be anywhere near a title race this season. So that's the number one priority. It, whether it's changing the high line, because there's even been, you know, murmurings from Van Dyke about that. People might have figured out how to play against the, the high line. Whether it's that, I, I, can't see them I can't see them sticking to it. And there are too many players that are playing below par so you know uh, how to fix Liverpool it's, it's stop conceding so many goals and conceding them first as well yeah even in the build up for a couple of those Brighton goals really half-hearted forward pressing from the likes of, of Mo Salah who you know it was just a, you know I'll, I'll sprint a couple of yards I'll make it look like I'm trying to press but actually I'm not putting my body in a position where I can contain the defender or dictate the direction in which they pass the ball they go past him easy they build an attack and they end up with a goal um it's not the same Liverpool. It isn't. It just isn't. But when you look at their squad, I do think it's slightly disjointed. You've got sort of players. It's weird, right? If we take an Arsenal, for example, you know, there were a lot of players in that squad coming in, particularly in terms of transfers, who were in the same part of their careers. You know, there was a period where it was like, look, we're building, we're buying young players who you might not know much about, but we believe they could be good players. You look at the likes of Zinchenko and, and Jesus coming to the club, um, even a Ben White, and then you're thinking, right, okay, younger players that have played the Premier League that have proven they can cope with this level. Then you look at Liverpool and you sort of think, you're bringing in a striker from abroad who has a big reputation. Does he necessarily fit, fit, fit with your style of football? Maybe not, because Roberto Firmino seems to click and they're a totally different style of player. Then you've got the young players coming in. We know Harvey Elliott came in a, a while ago, but he got embedded into the team at the start of last season. He's come back, played a lot of minutes this year. Then you've added a Fabio Carvalho. This is a really young player who still needs to learn how to be a Premier League footballer first off. And you're looking around and you're thinking, right, you know, they've brought in the, the backup fullbacks, for example. Where's their recruitment going? Luis Diaz, again, similar to Nunes. Um, is it just about figuring out the players that they've got in the squad, the roles that they can can perform best and then of course what their level truly is you know are they good enough well to come back to your first point Hugh about the kind of what it's going to be like for the next season that's the challenge for Klopp this season and I think you go back to them winning the title you go back to them all the success they've had under Klopp you always knew what his best team was you knew what his starting 11 was you always knew that and I, as you say you don't feel that now you've got a kind of mishmash of players of different levels um, in terms of experience and quality but that's the challenge for him this season. If we can get to the end of the season and, you know, they're competing in the top four and maybe probably, you know, knowing Liverpool probably still competing for a trophy, maybe even in Europe, and they know their best 11, they've got their players firing, like Gregor says, then they can come again and, you know, they'll be they'll be fine. But if, and who knows whether the World Cup will be a help or a hindrance with this, that's another factor when, you know, we've got, the, we've got another month of month of action, what will happen then? Then you've got a break, then you've got players coming back it's very it fits this kind of slightly messy stop start feel that Liverpool have got this season where they go behind in games and then they're frantically trying to come back and get pick up points that's the challenge find out what your best 11 is and get the players firing squads squads go through transition periods as well like and they don't they're not always as you expect them so we've always spoken, known that there was going to be a transition with the front three 
And they probably didn't expect that Sadio Mane would be the one to choose when he left rather than the other way around. Jordan Henderson doesn't look as dynamic at the moment and he's always a driving force in midfield. Thiago's, when he's, he's you know, got the game on the pitch more. And the line that jumped out of Paul Hurst's piece in the, in the game today was that any of Manchester City's five centre-halves would probably be good enough to partner Van Dijk. So I think they need a centre-half. Like Matip, Gomez, Kunati's coming back, but he's injured. You know, he had a, he had a good, I still think they need another centre-half to, to compete on all these fronts. And they need a central midfielder. So you're talking about where's the recruitment going. They've usually been one of the teams that were praised about yeah. preparing for these things. But this is a shock. They didn't expect this. Um, so they might mean that they need to accelerate some of those moves. Surely we've got to praise Brighton now, yeah? I was just about to. Good. You, you, can, you can host if you want. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm just getting worried there. I thought you were moving on, but... <laughs> Roberto De Zerbi had a great start as Brighton boss. Um, it's a tough month for him because he'll face Manchester City, Chelsea and Spurs as well as that trip to Anfield as well. Um, he says he wants to keep it the basis of what Graham Potter did, wants to sparkle, sprinkle in, sorry, some of what he brings in an attacking sense to their team as well. And he's been praised for his attacking teams in the past and you wonder whether Brighton can keep up a top four chase you know they did have a two goal lead here and all I'm saying is top four clubs punch, it's know, a punchy they, few minutes for Wolzencroft isn't it he's, <laughs> no, bend, yeah, he's you know. bend off Klopp he's bend off Liverpool and he's now got Brighton in top the top four top four clubs you've got to hold on to the three points shouldn't you you know I mean look it was, it was, well, let's, let's just say one thing you know we've talked about Wolves we've talked about need for new managers it's a great start for a new manager coming yeah, into yeah, this league. Yeah. Um, they looked really intense. You know, we talked about Liverpool's pressing heavy metal football, etc. There was only one team playing heavy metal football, and that was Brighton, swarming forward when they had the chance, getting bodies in and around the box. I thought Danny Welbeck was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, everyone's favourite footballer. Everyone loves seeing Danny Welbeck play well. And I mean, we're we're going to talk about Trossard, but he was absolutely superb. And I think he's speaking in the game as well this morning, talking about Deserby and the manager and saying about having text exchanges with him about you're going to be great you can do this and getting involved in training and things like that's that's impressive in a short space of time and after you know Potter was one of the longest serving managers was so kind of intertwined with what Brighton were like it's it's that's a quite a punchy job to take on um following in his footsteps because you know like Welbeck he was everyone's favorite manager so he deserves credit for starting in this manner that's for sure Liverpool averaged like 66% of the ball and they had 54 at home against Brighton, and that stat, I'm sh- I'm absolutely shocked that Tom hasn't come out with because it's in Bill in Bill's column today. Trossard's the first visiting player to score twice in the opening twenty minutes of a league match at Anfield since Bert Lineker did so for Lincoln City in 1960. There you go. That's a feat in itself. You know yeah. how many teams go to yeah, yeah, yeah. up against Liverpool Anfield. So yeah, all the praise in the world. They. He'd be he'd be mad to come in and say we're gonna you know rip up and start again. So he's you know he's saying the right things there, but when you look at the even the formation the system having the kind of the two in behind Welbeck but narrow, mm. you know not every manager would want to play that way. So it'll be interesting to see whether that continues. But that's the way that this team's been playing for a while and it suits them. One of the biggest things, one of the biggest compliments I can give him is that the players looked totally relaxed. The yeah. Ryan players did. Didn't feel like it was their first day with a new coach. So whatever he did, he managed to put his players at ease for a trip to Anfield, which in itself, you know, you'd be worried as, as an opposition player anyway. You know, there are the worst case scenario can't be good away at Anfield, especially with the players that they've got. But they were totally calm. They looked like the team with all that big match experience over the last few years and not Liverpool. And I've got to say, Leandro, Leandro Trossard is a player that I love. Good to hear the manager's been texting him because it's about consistency for Trossard. Like, you know, during the international break, you watch Belgium play and they played well, watched both of their games. Trossard is, you know, you see him at the end of the game. One of the games is an unused sub and you think, blimey, they must have a great team if Trossard doesn't even get on the pitch. But actually, I do feel it is about consistency for him when he plays great. When he plays well, he is great. When he doesn't play well, does he have that impact? I don't know. Is he underrated? Is he undervalued? Maybe maybe I'm being harsh for the third or fourth time <laughs> on this episode of the game. I don't know. What do you think, Tom? Is he an underrated player? We might as well talk about our most underrated players in the league. I think he is underrated, but you're, you're right 
uh, Hugh about consistency and um, I had to eat my own words on Saturday afternoon because we were looking ahead to Monday at Sellers Park with Graham Potter and I was saying to him isn't isn't Aubameyang the kind of striker you always needed at Brighton and then looked at the scoreline at Liverpool and see Trossard getting a hat trick so <laughs> he was there all along he just didn't didn't, didn't perform in the right way um, but yeah I, I think Brighton are just a team full of underrated players really aren't they and I think that's the legacy of what Potter had there is that there were no there were no superstars he he got them all to buy into what he wanted um into what he was trying to do and they were a, a machine that worked which is why it's so interesting to see whether it works at at, at a big club because um because it's you know it's there are more egos and it's it's being able to um to massage those and get them to buy into what you're trying to do okay let's ask about our most underrated players in the premier league shall we gregor let's go for it go on then all right okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> under okay i'm going i was at um bournemouth versus Brent, brentford at the weekend which was a classic but uh ben me still like some of his some of his kind of interceptions or last ditch tackles or blocks or there was a ball there was a ball floated to the back stick with Kiefer Moore, the giant Kiefer Moore lurking at the back post. And Ben Mee's just like he's so brave as well. Threw his head backwards at it, you know, away, knowing he could get absolutely clattered. Like it was a goal saving clearance. I still think, although he's been spoken about for a long, long time now at Burnley, he's still underrated and on a free. Like it, it was a absolutely inspired signing. It would have been for any Premier League team, like outside the top four or five clubs. Classic, classic hipster nomination, honestly. <laughs> Finally joined the Ben Mee hype train. Now no, he's left Burnley and gone to Brentford. I get it. And I'll go for a second one too at Brentford because I did. I also, I've always loved watching uh, Matthias Jensen. I did when they were in the Championship. He's such a classy footballer in midfield. And Brentford were doing, I've banged on about this a bit on the podcast this year, that kind of rotation with Rico Henry, was the, the left fullback was going really high up the pitch in the first half, almost in the left wing, higher into the forward line when Brentford had the ball at the back. And Jensen was kind of rotating out to the left back spot to get on the ball. And he's always so calm in possession, he can like, you know, he's playing in left back and getting the ball and skipping past players, switching play. Really, really, always looks like he's got time and space. Matthias Jensen, another player I really love um, love to watch. So there's two from from, from Brentford. Okay. I mean, I was going to mention Tarkovsky and me just because it's a it's a segment Sorry. about underrated players. So it's fine. <laughs> no, but you 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 make you forced me to make a change. I mean, I think as well we're not mentioning the game, um, but Newcastle's win uh, at Fulham was very impressive. And I mean, is anyone else not having Miguel Amaron's goal that volley? Absolutely superb. I'm he's, I'm not nominating him as my underrated player. <laughs> You're getting close to it. That is an underrated goal for me if we're not talking about that. Okay. Dropping over the shoulder, left footed into the opposite corner. You're all sat there looking at me like it's a cross or something, a miss hit volley. Gregor? Tom knows I think there's an element of luck to this one because <laughs> we said it up here. <laughs> I think he's kind of setting me up for this because I'll probably get abuse for it. <laughs> I just think, I just like if you, Almiron couldn't do that <laughs> very often. <laughs> Could any player though? Could I any can't player? wait. Clip, no, clip, I think clip that look, it was Almiron's complete instinct, stomach. complete instinct. But I think it was also a little bit lucky. Fine. Well, I won't nominate him as my underrated <laughs> player, but I'll nominate someone else that I know from the pre-show chat that you're going to laugh at as well. Jordan Ayew for Crystal Palace. Yeah. I just think maybe underrated is the wrong word, but underappreciated perhaps might be okay. the right one. Because I just think Palace's forward line and some of the attacking players that they brought in, Edouard, Mateta, Zaha, Eze, Elise, he still gets picked, man. He always gets picked. And like... That assist. That's, that's your. That assist. That's how you back him up. He let me finish. Hit. I'm about to tell you he's as good as Kevin De Bruyne. So just hold on a second. <laughs> that assist for Edward's goal. If you put those next to each other, we saw that clip doing the rounds on Spurs social media when Son basically scored the same goal twice against Leicester. Are you into the box, whipped across the face of the defence for Edward at the back post? De Bruyne to Haaland, same goal, no hype. Poor old Jordan, are you? Punchy show this, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I've gone for Harrison Reed at Fulham in central midfield, cool. who uh, yeah, just does his job. I know that sounds really, really, you know, simple, but he's a great organizer. He, he puts his teammates in the right position. Um 
he works himself into the ground. I actually think, you know, in terms of a player who helped him get back up and what he did last time in the Premier League, I think he's more than good enough to be in the top flight, a top flight player consistently. Good start to the season once again um, with Fulham. I, yeah, I, I do think he's an underrated player because you never hear him really spoken about. The other one that might surprise you is the Leeds goalkeeper, Ilan Melier. Big time. Has, I'm, who, I'm with you. We're in agreement. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> who, has, who has made so many ricks in his short time in English football that you might be like, what? He's awful. But the saves that he's able to make, the one-on-ones in particular, and we saw that against Villa, um, I think he's as good as anyone else in that area of his game. He's 22 years old. Yeah. And doesn't I, look it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the big thing for me as well. He's a goalkeeper in the top flight in probably the most difficult league in the world. He was left massively exposed yeah, by Marcelo Bielsa's tactics, let's be honest. So it's great with his feet as well. Yeah. yeah. I think he could have big like Aaron Ramsdale energy where he could get a move to another club and all of a sudden everyone would start going. This guy's sick. What's going on? Yeah. Like, actually, you need a team that's, that's to hate. help you defend. That's all right, though. <laughs> so I've gone for Ilan Melier. Okay, no hype on that one. I think he's a very good goalkeeper. He's maturing. He'll get better. Just needs to stack the weights up in the gym. You all right? He's six foot four, so he's never going to be huge, never going to look like The Rock. But, you know, I do think he's got a bright future ahead of him and Leeds United the right place for him right now. So that's... Is the end of the Why game. Po- one? Oh, I yeah. thought you did wow. yours. Wow. Oh, do you know what? I, re- I realised that I asked snub. you about Trossard on this question as opposed to just asking you about your underrated player. You get Better the last be good word. Now, Tom, and now I was going to say, and now I'm going to say that I always I'm not forget even things. sure it's an underrated player, but it's just an appreciation, which is, which is actually... Um, Alex Iwobi because of the the narrative Excellent around choice. him. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> um, because I just think momentum in football is is massive, and this is a guy who had was playing as a, a winger at Arsenal, was seen as the next big thing coming through, and the the amount of hype we were just using that word hype. The amount of hype around him. And then you can kind of understand the move to Everton in 2019, but it was a little bit of a joke at the time. People mocked it, you know, £34 million for Alex Iwobi. And, I and mean, I, it's, it's still... Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. I think it was overpriced. Um, but that, the you know, we've spoken about Harry Maguire and other players who price tags really affect players, mm. don't they? The expectation and the reaction to those prices as well. But he's reinvented himself at Everton. And I remember seeing Lampard play him in midfield and thinking... Hang on, is is Alex? I think it was at West Ham. Is Alex Awobi playing in central midfield? And it seemed so wrong at the time, but it's worked. He's bought into it, and he's been part of this revival at Everton under Frank Lampard. There you have it. Our underrated players, you can share them with us. Hit us up on social media at Timesport. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast as well, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for being with me. Thank you all for listening. We will see you again on Thursday. Take care. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.